Continuing a tradition of having mildly sex offendy aliens, <laughs> this is Veger, please, a heinous trip at Warp 5. My name is Joseph. And I will also force myself on your ears. Peter. Let's avoid that particular elephant in the room for just one moment and allow, just a minute. allow me to try and pitch to you once again that you should watch uh, Strange New Worlds, Peter. Oh, you you want to talk about your own adventures of being molested? <laughs> Please show me on the doll where you let Alex Kurtzman touch you. All our years doing this show together, that may be my favorite joke you ever uh, you ever launched into the into the ether. Mm-hmm. This is this is why we work together as a team. So I set something up. I didn't know what was going to happen. I knew you were going to do. I, th- I knew you were going to. You were going to strike. Come on, man! Lay the Stockholm syndrome bullshit on me. Okay. So I've really enjoyed the show so far. First five episodes are out. Uh, it's very Orville like, like Orville season two like, in my opinion. Uh, it's got a, a breezier tone to it, but it's still very much an adventure sci-fi show. Uh, the Pike is just fantastic. Hanson Mount, just 10 out of 10. Uh, Spock is now Spock again, which is nice. The change from what happened in Discovery, so I'm in favor of that. The show just works as episodic Star Trek. they got episodes with A plots and B plots. I mean, it's a throwback, man. It's kind of crazy. It's not perfect. Um, they have a, a terrible tendency to saddle every character with some sort of tragic backstory up to the point where one character gets saddled with two different tragic backstories. How much crying do they do about it? You know, that was actually one of the things that uh, they got a lot better. Like Discovery... One of its many faults is that it is like the most estrogen laden television show in the history of man. It's just it's all the main characters are women and it's just way too in its emotions. And if you're a guy, it's kind of difficult to get through. Well, listen, let's, my let's sidebar this real quick. And maybe maybe we are really doing something that should be a mess hall at this point. But like I'm I'm fine with a bunch of women. And in fact, I'm criticizing Enterprise for not enough women after what. Oh, yeah, you can go the other direction. I'm totally agree. You can be emotional, but I'm going to go back to something that you've harped on and I think was absolutely right. And it's the concept of unearned emotion. I do think that there is something to be said for the concept that if you don't have balance in the feminine to masculine in the program, you tend to go overboard one way or another. And we're watching Enterprise right now where – and again, here's another fucking episode where this is true where the the lack of the feminine touch and the feminine voice lends to some really weird shit. Whether it's bad boob jokes or what I can only refer to as Vulcan date rape uh, happening yeah. on screen. And then you've got Discovery where it's just too in its feelings and it's too emotional. It's, there's not enough – sort of structure or edge to it that the more masculine voice can provide and stranger worlds strikes the balance it actually does it it provides it out of all of the trek i think ever the most balanced kind of experience in terms of watching it and 
uh, it does have a little bit sometimes goes a little too far and has and some of its emotion is unearned. But particularly when it when it, it strikes the right balance in some of the better episodes that have come out so far, it's it's really good. It's actually worth watching. Well, I'll tell you what. Here, here's what I'll say. Let it get through the rest of season one. And if, if it completes season one and the only real dud on the books is episode two, as I've heard then I'll take the time out and I'll watch because my wife is certainly interested. She really liked uh, Pike from season two of discovery. Yeah. If Casey really liked Pike, I, I would say even if you're not necessarily convinced she would, she might unironically enjoy just watching it on that. But what you're asking for right now is a big ask. There's a lot of great TV out there right now. I am in love with season six of better call Saul. And we've talked a lot of better call Saul through the early episodes of Voyager because there was so much overlap from Saul cast into Voyager, but that is pound for pound, the best television show uh, on the air right now. Uh, I started getting into Barry on HBO, which has been nothing but fucking amazing. And I highly recommend that. And uh, my own personal favorite Orville just started. So there's two episodes out for that. This Obi-Wan thing. I'm, I'm going to wait. I'm <laughs> I mean, time's limited. Time's a precious thing for me. So it's it's really got to be worth it for me to, to take the time out of life, especially during the summer to watch some stuff. But uh, I have my eye on Strange New Worlds. And if you can finish out the season and still keep that thumbs up, I'll go. I'll go check it out. One other thing I'll add to the list of good TV, because I have Paramount Plus right now because I'm watching Strange New Worlds, is The Offer. Uh, which is essentially just a limited series, but it's about the creation of the Godfather as a film. And uh, it has Miles Teller in it and some other very good actors. It's actually, it was actually fantastic. I would. So if you happen to have a Paramount plus subscription for whatever reason, that is a worthy investment. Yeah. Like avoid halo, but watch the offer. The offer is good. Hey, there's a Beavis and Butthead movie coming out that I will definitely make time for. Paramount Plus also has all of uh, the new uh, South Park, which is actually very good. <laughs> like Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Um, Do not give a fuck. They, they it still hits. It still hits solid. Oh, and uh, I don't know if you need to hear this, Peter, but uh, go watch Top Gun and IMAX. Like make the time. Since we're just talking about everything but yeah. Star Trek. Uh, Chippendale's Rescue Ranger. Oh, that that you know, it's it's who framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> That's what it is. I thought it was going to be good, and it was three times better than I thought it could be. And again, having kids, it's a real pain in the ass to get out to the movie theater. So, like, I'm a big fan of stuff just being there without me having to pirate it. Um, IMAX, Top Gun, that that's going to take some finagling with some child care, but that might be worth it. Which is funny, because initially I didn't really have any desire to see it. I had a lot of desire to see it. And it made a point of going to see it in IMAX. And it is probably the most fun I've had watching a movie in a theater in 10 years. Better than the best Marvel movies I've seen. Better than Dune. Like, it was fantastic to watch. It is a great movie. And it is particularly needed to be seen in IMAX because of the sound design. And uh, the it was all shot for IMAX. I mean, is this? It's just made for it. Mm. So All right, I'll see what I can do. So after after 10 minutes of talking about not this episode of Star Trek, what did we actually uh, what did we watch to talk about on the Internet this week? 
which we are desperately attempting to avoid talking not about. Not desperately trying to avoid. Season one, episode 17, Fusion. I thought this was really good. I thought that the episode's premise is good in terms of what it is, att- what kind of story it's attempting to tell. I'm just actually kind of getting tired of T'Pol having just seemingly no agency in the episodes that are, are supposed to be about her. All right, let's talk to Paul real quick. Yeah. I agree that her agency seems limited and she is purely reactive as instead of proactive. And even her reactive nature isn't like someone pushed me, now I'm going to push them back. It's like someone pushed me and now I'm going to move a step back. She is not at all an assertive presence or one that makes her character's like perspective on things known in an, in an active way. And it is becoming very, very irritating to let me to live fork. Through. Let me fork the conversation here. I think we are, I think you're making those statements because visually she is seven of nine. She's a very attractive woman in a very tight outfit. Um, but whereas seven of nine is this headstrong to a fault, uh, asshole robot, uh, Paul is certainly not that. And I think that's making her submissive reactive nature stand out more than maybe it was intended to. It's a weird choice though, to make her seem so submissive and so led when you know she's supposed I to posted be a-, a meme and it was a star trek next generation title card and it's like a picture i put it on the trauma support group which you should go join if you're not on it already but it's you know that shot of the enterprise d and then they got like the title up on the top and the episode title is the writer's thinly veiled fetish yeah <laughs> yes i do i do remember this now yes but i mean let's let's say that hey our first go around as a production team is a hot lady in a tight cat suit oh seven and nine she's kind of killing the boner she's a little too bossy let's uh let's sub her down a little bit let's make to paul my so a she doesn't have any agency or seemingly doesn't have agency b my concern about her is the lack of consistency in the way that she acts she will be completely bound to tradition. Uh, the Vulcan way is the best way, blah, 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 blah. And then the next episode, this one in particular, um, hey, here's a thing that the Vulcan civilization considers extremely dangerous. And now one of these emotional terrorists uh, told me, hey, why don't you not meditate at night, which presumably... Vulcan children are told why you have to meditate at night, because if you don't, you go crazy and do crazy stuff. And, hey, you, wind, and you wind up having to go to the Tuvok meditation cave where you have to work, work off your blue balls. Yeah, you get sent off to, you got to go pray the, the emotions away. <laughs> um, hey, hey, don't, don't, don't meditate. Let's, let's see what happens. And she's like, okay, I'm not going to meditate. And then I'm going to have a bad night. And then I'm going to, kind of keep going back to the well. So like we're in season or we're in episode 17 and let me, let me make some predictions as far as to Paul goes. 
she wants to be a bad girl. She wants to shrug off the societal norms of the Vulcan civilization. Uh, as we see in this episode, she went to the nightclub. Mm-hmm. She got a little taste. She likes it. And she might not be admitting it to herself, but um, there, there's stuff she wants to do. And being on the human ship facilitates it. And that's why she is putting up with the ass night adventures of Jonathan Archer is to facilitate it. And I think eventually I'm going to hypothesize she's going to lean into that hard and something's going to happen there. And, you know, we're going to see below the tip of the iceberg, like what's really lurking beneath the surface there. And that this is all built up to that. But being at episode 17 with her still kind of playing this, this little game with herself of uh, denial is wearing thin and just making her look stupid. It's and it's also, I think that's just there. Everything you said is correct. And also it feels like in this first season in particular, the show is just being really mean to her. I don't know how to put it. Like she is constantly berated, uh, belittled, uh, victimized. And as we have said, several times already objectified and then provided no agency, even though in those circumstances where the episode is supposed to be about her and her perspective over and over and over and over again. It's like the only consistent thread of her character. You know, it feels like this is just a trope out of not another teen movie. Like what was it? She's yeah. She might as well just have a fucking, a ponytail that people point and make fun of. And then she's going to hit her hot girl moment where she takes the ponytail out and we discover she's, she's like the nerdy hot girl. Everybody's just taking turns bullying. Uh, How old is she supposed to be in Vulcan years? Well, it's, that's definitely something we've got to have. So Paul was born in 2088. uh, So she, was on Enterprise in 2151. So that means that she is 60. She's almost 70. And Vulcans have a lifespan of what? Hundreds of years. Um, so like uh, Sarek lived until the 24th century and he was the ambassador in the 23rd century. I'm right? sure it'll show on his Wikipedia how old he was when he died, right? This this is important space math we're doing right now, by the way. I, I agree. Yeah, this is very important space math. Throw Tuvok in there, too, because I was thinking about him on the way to work. Like, was he born around then? I'm, all, I'm like afraid when we start pulling dates and stuff like this because World War Three is such a fucking mess and a... Uh, a chronological clusterfuck that like, but for Vulcans, it should be okay. Cause it's all like in the super made up future for all these ones that we actually yeah. have information about. You know what I mean? So, I mean, go ahead and hash out how old she is, but here's what I need is an episode that flashes back. And we find out that basically she is like 17 or 18 in Vulcan years. And that she did something stupid that got her in trouble and exiled off to the human enclave the Vulcan enclave on earth. And she kind of pissed people off there. So when there was a chance to shove her off onto a ship and get her out of the enclave, people were eager to do it. And that she is a black sheep or that there is something different about her 
that she has never fit in with Vulcan society, that she feels more at home with the humans. Uh, that's why she has been picked for this, that she has not found her own confidence. That is why she has been perpetually victim, not victimized, but why, you know, more often than not, she's the butt of the joke. There are ways you could potentially explain the circumstances that T'Pol has found herself in or, or why it is things have occurred the way they have or why she's passive or Sure, there's there's ways to navigate the minefield they've laid for themselves. I'm not doubting that. And if we're, I know I'm, we're still kind of rambling and not actually talking about the episode. But it, it's what overwhelmed my thoughts as I was watching this. Is just like you're you're treating her like in almost Chief O'Brien way of like she just always has to like suffer rather than be treated as a character who has some depth worth exploring. In this ki- in this episode, she feels like a 12 year old. That's the older kids are teaching her how to smoke behind the tree in the backyard. Well, let's get to the smoking, shall we? Cause we start in the teaser with Archer showing to Paul a astronomy book that has on its cover, a nebula that they have just found. And Archer is exploring his own inner 12-year-old and wanting to explore the nebula on the book that he had when he was a kid. There you are. You're a captain of the first starship. Your guns aren't even installed on your fucking ship yet. And a bunch of other shit doesn't work. You're telling me that you had time to bring a fucking birthday present from your eighth birthday, which is a book, onto this little tiny ass ship that you are going to be zipping around. And like, how much other crap does he have? in that bedroom if he has a fucking book from his eighth birthday. I actually think that this is one of those sort of sentimental things of him hanging on to where he, he's literally pursued a life of space exploration and he's kept this thing in his quarters, wherever he's, whatever he's been posted as the sort of memento of when that idea was first in his head. Like I get what they're going for with that. I won't throw too many stones at it. Like he's the captain. He's got a lot of stuff there. He's probably got like people who work for him that could have gotten his stuff for him. The few days that they had before they left, you know, I could mm-hmm. see how that happens. Well, they get right up on top of it. I don't really understand why Archer called to Paul to his quarters to show her that there's no real conversation that happens. Even she's like, you called me here to show me a book. He's like, no, no, I want you to see this other thing over here, which is the screen of the book. Imagine having a boss that just calls you to their their house nonstop to just it feels like the office. You know, Archer was calling her into the office in the hopes of just getting his face in her boobs again. He got a taste of the good life. You know, he wants it's a small room. OK, you know, you, you, you just try to create the circumstances by which you can relive your fantasy, you know, sure. Which is also possibly a, a plot line from the office now that we're. Now that we're being honest. <laughs> so uh, this doesn't last long because they get hailed by a Vulcan vessel. And they're like, oh, suspicious. This is bullshit. It's going to be Vulcan. It's going to be nonsense. Except they get hailed by uh, a very n- nice guy who's a Vulcan by the name of Tavin. George Kirk. Yeah, it's George Kirk. Yeah, or or more specifically, it's Chris Pine's dad. Same so, thing. so uh, this guy is uh, played by Robert Pine, who is alternate reality from the JJ movies, Kirk's dad. And uh, he is 
like, hey, how you doing? I am, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the captain of this vessel, and we could, uh, we could use your help. And everyone's like, you seem like a person. That's weird. Our danger sense is up. We've met Vulcans before. They're all jerks. I like them saying uh, we don't have this record of this ship configuration in our database. And DePaul's like, that has not been used in a very long time because someone on the writing team didn't want to really commit any research or, or <laughs> flesh that out at all. Yeah, that's canon, man. You start you start spitting out Technobabble there, then that shit gets in a book, and then people are going to use it for 20 years. Yeah. And then and then 21 years later, if you don't make that reference correct, they will all be mad at you. So just say it hasn't been used in a long time. It's duck bat. How long has this been out of there? Oh, Captain, it's been out there a minute. Uh, the guy's real, real easy to go. Hey, could you please help us? Which, when's the last time we've heard the Vulcans asking for help? Never. We need help with these engines. Please and and thank you. And Archer's like, oh gosh, wow. How how seemingly nice. And DePaul's like raising the eyebrow over there because she smells that something is wrong. They go ahead and they dock the ships side by side. They're starting to inspect. And we find out these are not our garden variety Vulcans at all. They come over to have dinner in the captain's mess, and it's Archer and Paul, and then two of the Vulcans. It's uh, the captain who we've met earlier, uh, Tavin, and then uh, you, the guy that everyone warned you about at the goth club named Talaris. I like to call him First Officer Smirky. <laughs> yes, he. Oh, Mr. He, Smirk. Not Mr. Spock. This is Mr. Smirk. This man vibes from the moment he is on screen to say, don't let him near your drinks, ladies. Like there he he's got that that predatory glance and that, as you mentioned, that ever present smirk that says, I'm not above Rohypnol. He went to the Catherine Janeway School for Gifted Close Talkers. You cannot have a conversation with this guy unless his shoulder is somehow physically touching a part of your body. If you're not tasting what he had for dinner, are you really talking to him? Again, I endlessly amused by the fact that Chef does not have a name. This becomes such a running gag. It's actually the show becomes self-aware. You know, I don't know if you saw the comment on the Sabor group, but basically a question asked if the NX-01 had been dumped by the caretaker array in the Delta Quadrant, if it would have had a better or easier time than Voyager did, because there's already so much more physical uh, food storage and water supply space, which I thought was really interesting. But hey, Chef has gotten pretty good, actually, at Vulcan cuisine, and I think you're going to really like what we've got here. And then Chris Pine's dad's like, yeah, but how about that chicken, though? And uh, Paul looks at him like he just asked to eat roadkill. So he gets a, a solid piece of what is obviously supposed to be chicken marsala. It even looks like chicken marsala. It probably is chicken marsala. You know, they just had the 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 craft services whip some up or something. Who knows for the scene? But uh, they start talking about how they are not exploring space. They're exploring themselves. How did you At, take that? I already knew the plot. Yeah, but I mean, how did you take the line? Because I'm reading the wiki, uh, the memory alpha, and uh, I saw them being referred to as 
the hippie Vulcans. And when they laid that line, and that's, I think, what's really shaped this entire episode for me in terms of like enjoying it. He says, uh, well, we're explorers, but not of space. We're ex- what we're exploring is ourselves. And that immediately made me think of a line from a movie that uh, we're explorers and the furthest regions of experience, demons to some, angels, angels to others. And I was like, holy shit. They're Hellraisers. These are fucking Cenobites, man. These are, <laughs> these are Cenobite Vulcans. These are some fucking... And that's... You know, you and I have watched a lot of uh, infernal devil movies, right? If only people knew why, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's something I really liked about the first Hell... Select Hellraiser. Some Hellraiser movies, they're just fucking legit hell demon bad guys but i really liked in that first clive barker hellraiser that these guys are just again we keep going back to this idea of the the dnd sensates people just out for that to try every experience out there pain or pleasure and that's what the cenobites represented and that they're looking for intensity they're looking for the next high Mm -hmm. and the i guess is the episode where we're going to talk about all media the good hellraiser story is they have grown so accustomed to anything not extreme, right? That that is the source of the horror, right? They're not evil in the sense that they have an agenda. It's just that they are so they're what? Out, they're so beyond our understanding of what there's left to experience that what they're doing seems horrifically evil. It's like internet porn, right? You start off looking at airport, you're like, wow, boobies. And then you're like, I don't even know what I can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, two girls, one cup, right? Like, oh, man, that's, that's, come on, man. I'm way past that. That's, <laughs> you gotta pump that up. Well, you know, I mean, still, you go from the, from, from the, the Playboy with the uh, girls gone, you know, from, from the Pac 10 in it uh, to anything that, that the, the internet can conjure up on essentially at a whim. There's Ninja Turtle ones. I don't know if I told you about that, but you show that to your friends. They're like, Oh my God, what is wrong with you? The pterodactyl ones. Yeah. Yeah. But that's even that's tame. So, you know, that's these Vulcans, right? They're, they, I, I really like the angle that they are exploring that what they are doing is incredibly taboo. And I think that's where it really starts to put to Paul in this weird light because they're talking about should be on par with us with like necromance, not necromancy, uh, necrophilia, right? Like what is the most taboo thing that you can think of? That's just universally rejected. And she's sitting at table with these guys who are like, yeah, we, we are doing things incredibly more, dangerous than smoking over an open pool of gasoline i don't i don't think it's that much i think that because right off the the bat they they say they're not vulcans without logic they are vulcans who are trying to uh, to find a balance between emotion and logic that that logic is endemic to the vulcan experience but Court, you know, setting, shutting yourself off from all emotion is also incorrect. So I, and think I really this is, like that aspect of them as well. And I, I think this is more akin to, you know, native population shaman, you know, taking you on a peyote trip 
type of of kind of like out there and definitely weird and fringe, but not like taboo forbidden, you know? That's kind of where I saw it of like they're kind of doing some wackadoodle shit that is not acceptable within society, but is not itself like criminal. Like you're describing something that would be criminal where this is just being rejected by society. I guess I don't know enough. Are they either Hare Krishnas? You know, they're like part of a little a weird cult. You know, I don't know. There's it's it falls I, I just, a little I don't short know of what about you described. Vulcan at this point, the the planet Vulcan and how the planet Vulcan of Archer's era really differs than what we've seen from TOS and into TNG and stuff. So yeah, I guess these guys aren't necessarily cannibals, like cannibal level yeah. ta- taboo. Uh, because they are still talking about managing logic and trying to balance it with some emotion versus just like, yeah, we went all in and now we're the fucking where they reavers from uh, Serenity. Yeah. And I, I'm pleased to say that the best part about this episode is that this thread of what makes a Vulcan a Vulcan, that this sort of starts with emotion versus logic and the interplay between the two and the teachings that is actually something that they return to and then ultimately actually by the end of the show pay off in a way that is very satisfying and builds as far as like the the background on Vulcans as a race. Because to jump around in the episode a little bit here, like it would be easy enough while I'm watching the first half to be like, all right, these guys might all just turn out to be Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde's and like they're going to go full monstrous and have to get gunned down in the hallway. And that'll be like an action adventure episode. They don't, they don't do that. These guys end up going off and splitting ways, but this dude will introduce the mind meld, which I was very interested to see that the mind meld was virtually unknown. And it was basically part of the forgotten teachings, forgotten teaching. was his name? Ciroc, mm-hmm. which obviously that becomes a big fucking deal in in down the road. So something these guys are doing has to survive this episode and reach mainstream. And like, as you've put out there, like Vulcans in enterprise are an incomplete race. They're missing a piece mm-hmm. to get them to their perfect form in the uh, TOS and, and TNG era. What, what is that evolution going to be? Where's it going to have to come through? And these guys seem like, a great pivot point. And I spent the first half of this episode of our talking kind of bagging on this thing, but that is the cool part about this. This starts a thread that continues and expands and takes twists and turns until it ultimately goes through the entirety, basically of the show uh, and, and pays off near the end of season four and its final form. And it's actually quite excellent what they end up doing with this as you said, Vulcans being incomplete and what is missing and how does the story that Enterprise is involved with end up playing into Vulcans becoming more like what we end up uh, seeing later on. Um, and this is all related. That's cool. That's part of the continuity that makes Enterprise work, particularly as they figure the show out. And I like that, like you said, these guys aren't treated as black-hatted villains. There's one guy... It's it's another sergeant sex crimes. You know, it's it's another guy who's doesn't know how to keep his hands to himself. But the captain, Tavin, he's not 
uncharitably uh, characterized at any point. And then the other character you see is Kov, who's an engineer. Who's, First pudgy Vulcan I've ever seen. Yeah, just kind of like a harmless Reddit poster. You know, like he's just... I really very, like that guy by the end. Yeah, he's got a real round face, like you said, and he's just very matter of fact about things, but not wrong. Like he's he's working through pain and emotion um, that he has on a personal level with a bad relationship with his father. And honestly, like best scene in the show in the entire episode is really him and trip. Yeah. You know, like, so yeah, you're right. Like they do a good job of building something here and not turning it into a farce and providing texture to it. And it's a shame that everything with Paul ends up, I think, dragging down the rest of what goes on here. So they have their dinner. Uh, Enterprise has agreed to help rebuild their engine, which is going to require a lot of work. And while they're kind of uh, doing those repairs and going into Archer's childhood fantasy, was it the Crab Nebula or something? Yeah, this nebula that was on this on this uh, book. They're like, hey, even though we're cruising around this beat up space hoopty that not even the Maquis would be caught dead in. Uh, our sensors are still way fucking better than yours. So let us help you. We're going to we can we can do a little bit to help. And uh, Archer's like, cool. Well, I need someone over there to be a liaison. To Paul, you're going to go over there, even though you've been like apprehensive about doing it without even asking you in private. I'm just going to shove you over towards these guys. What's the worst that could happen? He, he she's very against what they're up to, saying that, you know, whenever people whenever Vulcans attempt to get in touch with their emotions, it doesn't work out. Uh, but Archer's like, yeah, do it anyway. Keep an open mind. You never know. You might like these cannibals. They eat other people. They won't eat you. And uh, T'Pol has a very weird first encounter with Talaris in the mess hall. You mean uh, First Officer Smirk? Yes, Sergeant Sex Crimes Part 2. And he comes in and wants some advice about some kind of human food to to try and settles on the mint tea that T'Pol is drinking before... Having the idea of having pizza, which he clearly had before he came in and started trying to passive aggressively flirt with Paul. Here's an important thing to know about this Cenobite ship. It is a sausage fest. No ladies. There's no ladies, which uh, the what was the cough 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 is very quick to point that out. Um, this is the nerd table at school <laughs> and they got a fucking spaceship and then you've got all the, the big archetypes from the nerd table being represented on this ship. Kov is definitely the guy who's way into magic, the gathering. I'm just gonna, that's why I like him. Yeah. Same here. That's why I like him. And they'll talk about pond far a little bit uh, that, you know, cause trip asks Kov, like what, what's up with sex? Cause obviously he's trying to figure out how to put it in to Paul. And he's yep. trying to get some some info on this. And I like that Vulcans are always so uh, so aloof and uh, imprecise about physiology and sex and all that. For all their other anal record keeping, nobody knows how sex on Vulcan works. Very repressed, right? It goes, oh, yeah, well, here, I'll tell you all about it. 
calves like real open. Yeah, we go through our mating process once every seven years. It's super intense. We've been doing experiments to try and like, I don't know, we've been taking uh, first officer smirks, dad's blue pills and and trying to. <laughs> we've been we've been jacking and chilling at 24 hours a day okay. trying to get our tea count high enough. We're trying we're trying to overclock our gonads here and, and see if we can't get it up more than once every seven. I notice you got a lot of ladies out there. He's got like all these comical like I hear you can mate with him whenever you want and you sl- you eat six meals a day and sleep half, you know, half the time. And yeah, Trip tri- takes many people I know, which, you know, this dude's not wrong. I do like that immediately Trip is like taking this guy under his wing and being like, okay, buddy, you clearly need a Sherpa through this experience. I will be, I will be your guide. I cannot expose you to the real world. (laughs) You need, you need to be under my wing. Reed coming over and like kind of party crashing. I think he wanted to talk about Paul's butt a little bit. Can I be in this episode? (laughs) No, no. Bye. Not after (laughs) pod one. Peace out, buddy. You are so like you and Amanda are the only ones in that apparently don't like that episode. Uh, listen, that we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Time in, like, okay so, yeah, time. Yeah. Quick time out. Like this will air sometime after our review of Shuttlepod 1. It won't be a mystery that you fucking hated it. And already before it's even gone out, the, the drama support group is rallying around me and my defense of the episode. And you've got one Canadian on your side, and that is it. I've got two people on my side. Maybe maybe more. So the mess hall scene between T'Pol and Smirk, he also kind of probes. And I guess this is a good time for her to like, if, if you were going to put some shit in her past about why she is as down with this crew as she is, it would have been here like, this is why I'm an outcast. This is why I'm interested in humans. And they they'll broach it during her dream with the jazz club or whatever. But uh, he's kind of starts hinting around like, you know, you've you're getting along well with these humans. You're different. There's something here you want to explore. Um, if you set the. Sexual assault vibes for this guy aside, like he is very cl- clearly a recruiter for whatever this Cenobite cult is. Um, if you take away the attraction that he shows towards her, like the guy's on the prowl for converts for the cult, and he definitely sees a lot of potential here. We find out that T'Pol served on the uh, enclave on Earth for two years, and up to this point, it's been seven months since Broken Bow. And we already established back during uh, Shadows of Pajem that. No Vulcans ever made it this long being on a human ship, which lends you know further obvious credence to the fact that she's there for her own personal reasons that that humanity facilitates. Uh, but I think he does some pretty solid, you know, being a former, I guess we're fraternity boys forever. But like I, I see, <laughs> I see the rush angle this guy's taking here. Right, he's rushing her hard. That's why I say it's more of a cult um, a mentality than anything else. They're Hari Krishnas, but. The 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 plot continues when Hoshi gets a message from Admiral. Oh, hey, Forrest. she gets to be in the episode too now. Yeah, very just very briefly, just real quick. Wow, yeah, there she is. Uh, and Forrest talks to 
Archer and is like, yo, heard you uh, met some Vulcans out there. Listen, uh, so Saval came to me asking me for a favor to see if you can get Kav to contact his dad because his dad is dying and they had a falling out before he left. And, you know, apparently this guy's a BFD and it's going to look real nice if you do them a solid since they just let you keep Paul. Because his dad's a council member, too. Yeah, like he's he's on the high command. He's exactly the kind of guy who you want possibly disposed towards you. So why don't you make that magic happen for and us? And then there? Archer's like acts like uh, forced <clears throat> asking him to poison somebody. Yeah, I'll see what I can back. do. Ho and hum, and it's like, dude, you were just looking for ways to to keep to Paul on your ship, like drop drop the bullshit up to and including like faking a medical diagnosis to like do this weirdo shit where you convince the Vulcans that you know she's you know sacrificed her life for someone else. Like this is such a three foot putt. Oh yeah, no problem. I'll make this happen. That's easy. I'll, get, I'll, I'll work this kid. I'll get him to get in touch with his dad. No problem. Mm-hmm. We can do this one. No, oh, but, what is it? A dying father wants to talk to his son? I mean, this seems like it's an obvious um, morality choice here, but I don't want to go playing God. And, uh, yeah. ugh, you know, I just but, let a billion fucking people die on a planet surface when I was dangling a cure over their head. So uh, I apologize to everyone who listened to our episode about Dear Doctor that somehow we did not bring up that prior to that episode, Phlox mentions how Denoblians use genetic engineering freely, you know, like all the time. I want to like Phlox, but fuck Phlox. I love Phlox. That's just, but it's, it's like, it's a... Uh, post-mortem revival techniques you know it's like you just have to let the really wild shit go it's the scorpion part you know two yeah but we never let it go i never let it go and i won't let you never let it go i can let things go i go back and listen to fucking scorpion part two i'm surprised you didn't have to go see a fucking therapist I I actually did before we did our our wrap up on Voyager. I went back and listened to it. I'm like, boy, I was very angry. Did you go (laughs) after that episode and fucking go strangle the neighbor's cat or something? I mean, (laughs) how do you move past that evil in your soul? Um, So you've got a couple plot lines floating now, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got the blossoming bromance between Trip and uh, Kav. Kav. That within half of an episode, they're able to create more feasible chemistry than I got between Trip and Reed through all of Shuttlecraft One. Trip and Reed, I don't know, man. I'm getting like Paris. Uh, nothing's as bad as Paris and uh, Balana lack of chemistry. Yeah, that's just a, a desert. But uh, yeah, they got they got a blossoming bromance with a hidden agenda there. And then we've got to Paul and Officer Smirk um, and, and some interesting stuff's going on. So Officer Smirk, after his first round of uh, chase into Paul, 
It's like, hey, we need to try pizza. And she's like, yeah, I don't think so. And she kind of goes with the standard brush off. Again, this is where she starts breaking these precedents that she has set for herself. Immediately spins on her boot and turns to face him and says, uh, maybe another time we can eat pizza, though. Like, why is she giving this dude the time of day? She knows unless she's just attracted to the bad boys. And I'm willing to admit that. I mean, that it's time for some trip. people. Yeah, I may so, get it, you know. Okay, you know, we can eat pizza sometime. Like, and she's also, and she's also a little interested in what they're up to, and up to including, she decides to take his advice and does not meditate before going to bed, and of course has incredibly vibrant dreams about smooth jazz clubs in San Francisco that are also sex dreams, and you know a lot of uh, a lot of uh, blinking lights and a statue falling apart, and then. She wakes up and goes sees flocks and is like, "Yeah, I didn't meditate. Just give me a give me a, some fucking novocaine so I can get through my day." We have seen Vork at his worst. We know what mean, nasty, violent Vulcans look like, and if meditation is what keeps that in check, basically smirks over there and being like, "Hey, you should not practice lockout tag out and then go." <laughs> work on the fuse box because it's really cool and it'll be quote unquote vibrant and fun and not at all uh, going to endanger everybody's life and then she she does it it's crazy you should just let the joker out of his cell at Arkham Asylum Mm -hmm. and just you know just spice everything up see what happens you know what you should do is just go ahead and mix all that bleach and chlorine and and or no bleach and ammonia and just mop that floor it'll be great I do like their conversations while she's over on the ship uh, pointing out there are additional texts which are not state endorsed where Sarek does say like emotions do have a place and like we are the Vulcan society has only embraced this one way of thinking, not the full way of thinking. And I think that lends a lot of um, superficial credence to what he's saying. And I think in 2022, as um, as critical doubting Americans, we can all look at that and say, like, this dude just like anti-vax, like what? (laughs) I mean, I I took the parallel, I think, which they were intending at the time, which is, you know, debates over religion within religion. There are people that interpret Christianity differently to the degree that they literally have different denominations within it, right? You know, whether you're a Catholic or one of the Protestant, uh, you know, a Calvinist, a Lutheran or whatever, like there are ways to take something that is supposed to have come from the holy source, whether it's, you know, uh, our very like human Jesus or Vulcan Jesus in this case. And now from that, you're going to have different interpretations of what this all meant. And so these guys are an offshoot cult or an offshoot denomination of what it is that Vulcan Jesus was teaching them. When she has these dreams, the jazz club, that's all cool. That's fine and dandy. And then sex specifically with uh, smirk starts going on. And I'm like, did she bang some guy at the club? And like, he's, she's superimposing his face over it. I knew someone was going to have to be the bad guy in this episode, and it's very clearly going to be Smirk. Mm-hmm. At this point, I'm getting heavy um, shades of uh, what was the Balana's sexy dream episodes where the Nazis burn all the. Remember. Remember. 
So I'm figuring, because we know that Vulcans are also, you know, amazing psychics in addition to everything else, that this dude's like telepathying in and like puppeting her dreams. And there's some sort of like weird intrusion of his mind into hers. But no, this is just her putting him in these needlessly sexy dreams because we need to see Jolene Blaylock rolling around in the sheets with somebody because it's been 24 hours. It's been a whole episode. No, she got fucking sexy back in shuttle pod one when she starts leaning in on Reed when he's having his fucking little stinky fantasy. Yeah. They cannot help themselves to what she's objectifying her, her. Like they cannot stop. It's it's what it she's is, there for. It is what she's there for. And it is so much worse than what they did to Seven of Nine. At, at least they how? gave how could it be worse? Like it is though. I that's right? what I'm saying. Like how yeah. it's not as blatant. Like they're not right up on her boobs and ass nonstop. Or maybe I'm just desensitized to those camera angles because we watched four seasons of it with was it was she four seasons or three seasons in Voyager? Four seasons, right? Four seasons. So maybe I'm just desensitized to it, but um, when they had the camera highlighting Jerry Ryan's ass for four years, that felt less exploitive to me than what they've done to Jolene Blaylock already in season one. Because yes, she's the hot blonde that is you know fucking cyber Barbie uh, Terminatrix, right? We made the joke. We made every single one of those fucking jokes, right? Every one of them over two years of reviewing those four seasons. But she had a clearly defined character. She was very in charge. She was very expressive. And ultimately, that won out as time went on in terms of her characterization. Even if she always looked like a million dollars and that camera was always somewhere near her ass. It didn't feel nearly as exploitive because this is just we need to get her fucking clothes off. We need to have her in like directly a yuck, yuck either jokey situations involving her appearance or just straight up. We just need to get her, her stripped down as often as possible because this is the sexy show and we need to have that sexy body on screen as much as possible. They very clearly have established themselves as wanting to be the sexy show. And I still, I don't buy it as a sexy show. It just feels tacked on and stupid. Yeah, They're trying it's, this is an old person's version of trying to be young. Yeah. Like that intro yeah. song you're trying to warm up to. And I don't I don't want to be unfair to Jolene Blaylock, uh, but I. Oh, this is not her fault. No, 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 no. What I'm going to say is just shallow and shitty, like the lip injections or whatever she got are so distracting (laughs) that thank God she is playing a Vulcan in something alien where it's like it doesn't look bad. It just looks a little different, like the ears look a little different and it just kind of blends in because for a second I was looking at her like a human and I'm like, man, like. 90s plastic surgery and and stuff like that i don't it was not the most flattering choice and we'll leave it at that i don't know um here's my question to you regarding the seven and nine to paul uh mashup what's worse the needlessly blue situations they continue to put to paul in uh under the thin guise of plot happenings or the fucking endless loop of Seven of Nine wants to be a real girl that we had to deal with for like all of season four and a little bit into five. Hmm. I feel like that what they do to T'Pol is worse in individual instance, but because I am blessed with the knowledge that they stop doing this, 
eventually, or at least they're better to T'Pol after season one. Uh, it's I, it's hard for me to say for sure, right? Like, it's more intense what they do to DePaul, but also lasts. It doesn't last as long. To me, seven of nine was worse because those repetitive plots of her going through the same motions over and over again made me dislike the character. Uh, and then later on, they did so much with the character to make her cool that it makes me resent that early stuff even more because, like, you could have covered a lot more cool ground. So, like. I feel sorry for T'Pol watching Enterprise, whereas uh, season four of Voyager, I actively disliked seven of nine because the frequency of having to watch him do the same exact fucking plots over and over again. I see where you're going with that. And and that's why it's a difficult question. I completely agree with you. And I'm sure if we roll the tape back. There's a lot of us talking about how fucking boring that got and boring, man. That's the worst sin. Yes. You don't ever want to be boring. You can be bad and engaging and that is way better than just boring. And maybe this, because it's so bad and blatant and therefore interesting to talk about, it's not as bad. So it's a worthy perspective, sir. Speaking of some worthy perspectives, apparently to Paul thinks smirk has a, uh something worth checking out even though she just had her intense sexy dreams um despite god man she is sick bay's number one customer huh yeah teeth uh getting shots bad sexy dreams it's a good thing that flox is as good a doctor he is except for all that billion people that he left to die because he can fix all this stuff (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I've forgotten about it for five minutes. Thank you for reminding me. And don't worry. I'm uh, here so for you. She goes, Hey, you know what? Smirk. I want to, I, I, I do. I would like to learn more in that starship troopers kind of way. And he's like, great, let me come over uh, with my Ouija board. And we are going to explore the far reaches of weird. I want to show you this new Milton Bradley game. I bought it. It's called mind meld. This is an, an uncommon long abandoned technique where I touch your face and uh, I'm going to skim over or maybe he's just not aware of the dangers that are present by mind melding, but I know I'm going to touch your face and I want to touch your boobs. And this is probably gonna be the fastest way to get to do that. So the other thing I thought might've been going on here and, and maybe it is cause they don't explicitly disprove it, but like, Let's go back to random thoughts of Voyager, where you have a society, a repressed society that fetishizes that certain elements will fetishize and highly uh, make a high commodity of bad think. And that maybe this dude, maybe this Vulcan Cenobite is addicted to extremes and kind of like the Skeevians, right? He's after the thrill and like or or that. Or the back alley uh, uh, thought police people that were like uh, that was random thoughts. Yeah, they're gonna arrest. They're gonna arrest Bolana for being violent, but they also wanted the violence. Right. So like she's got extreme repressed uh, experiences, and that's his fetish, and he he wants those memories. And I think that's kind of like my final takeaway on this guy. And they do some cool like fleshing him out. He used to be a very prestigious literary teacher at the most prestigious Vulcan Academy. He left a great life. Uh, DePaul kind of criticizes him for it. And he's like, yeah, well, that wasn't 
scratching that itch for me. And that's why I'm out here on the USS Sausage Fest. And that makes a lot of sense, like that he was a literature professor, because that means he has this sort of untapped artistic quality, right? Like he, if you don't, no one studies literature that isn't into the expression of the self. Sure. You know, like that's, you don't, you don't devote your life to that unless that moves you. And so if you're a Vulcan who's into that, you're going to have a lot of itches that aren't scratched. You're going to read all of this literature and have to internalize it and then talk about it and instruct other Vulcans in it. And yet you live in a society where all of this rich texture of the universe can't truly be experienced because everyone's a fucking uh, uh, logic Puritan, right? And so eventually it drives you to a point where you're like, I would rather go hang out with these Hare Krishnas and and maybe mentally rape some people. So I, I get that. Like, that's cool. This dude's a villain that I think pushes a lot of the same buttons as the Bajoran hologram did in the last Herogen episode where there's some really good thought put into this guy's background. He just gets a little two dimensionally bad for his own good at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Like the Bajoran holy warrior be, you know, basing his freedom fighterness over the fact that he is in fact programmed off of Bajoran holy freedom fighters mm-hmm. was like, okay, I like, I like it. Like he's praying to the prophets and all this, like he believes this, but he doesn't believe it because he knows he's self-aware. Like there was a lot going on in that. That was very interesting. And then he just kind of winds up a bad guy and he gets just decompiled. Whereas this guy, there's a lot going on here. And then he's just, you know, he crosses the line and he's just the bad guy now. Um, Oh, catch quick update on our B plot. Uh, Archer pitches to, to Kov. Hey, can you talk to your dad? Uh, and Kov, like we've talked about, he's he's got a lot of depth in what is a pretty brief performance on his part where he's talking about like, well, my dad was an asshole who said I was a disappointment to 15 generations of my family. So uh, I think uh, I'm not going to talk to him. I think I'm heard about that, you know, very normal, very relatable. And what I love about this episode is you don't really see too much out of, um, out of what's his face is Chris Pine's dad. Yeah. But the other two, uh, are the same character. It's, it's children playing with a loaded gun. They're dealing with heavy subject matter that they do not understand what the real ramifications can be for a smirk it's sexual assault basically for cove uh and this will get fully expressed because archer's pitch fails and then he goes to trip and says hey listen man like we need him to talk to his dad for reasons can you please try and work it you're the closest thing that he seems to have a friend on the ship and uh trip does a great job not saying, hey, you need to do this because of uh, reasons for your dad, but here's a story about my own personal regret not asking a girl to dance with me and how 20 years later I still remember yes. this. I mean, that 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 line, the, the setup for it was great. First, Trip doesn't push back on Captain, like Captain to Art. To, uh, Trip's like, well, wow, that's a great idea. We're kind yeah. of in the doghouse. Yeah, I'm going to take <laughs> care of that for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then. You know, he, he makes the pitch, 
you know, Cobb is very stridently against. And so Trip changes his tactic and he tells the whole story by building it up, right? Of like, I really liked this girl. So I like spent all this time learning how to dance, learning how to like get myself ready to do this. And she was interested and I didn't pull the trigger. And, you know, the, the, the payoff is that I still think 20 years later about the fact I didn't ask her to dance. Imagine how you're going to feel not talking to your dad and then he's dead. Like imagine how much, like if that tiny bit of regret is something I still can't quite get away from, even though it was in all intents and purposes, an inconsequential choice on my part. This is a consequential choice on your part. And the regret you feel for choosing not to talk to him is something that will follow you forever. And you don't want that. And more importantly, the illusion there is that I'm a human and I've grown up with emotions. You have to quote Catherine Janeway, let the genie out of the bottle. You're after the fun, good emotions. But as a consequence, you're exposing yourself to a lot of bad stuff that you don't even know exists let alone uh, how to deal with it. And regret is one of the worst. So this isn't for your dad. This needs to be something for you. And I'm telling you as your friend, uh, you are basically putting an emotional shotgun in your mouth right now and like licking the barrel and it is not going to go well for you. So uh, really consider maybe changing your course of action here for your own sake. And I thought that was fucking brilliant. And that, that just let's go ahead and finish off this B plot right now. Mm-hmm. By the end, once it's time for them to part ways, um, Cove is going or Cobb, whatever the fuck his name is, uh, is going to to you know go back to the ship and Trip, who has not been like high pressure. Like, you, you talk to your dad. You talk to your dad. He's like, all right, here's a big to do list of engineering shit and make sure you get these parts and this and that. Um, and then he discloses like, hey, I got news that my father is not actually going to be dying after all, which seems to me at first as a, as a viewer that they're trying to uh, de-escalate the situation. Like it wasn't imperative for him to talk to his dad after all. And he can get away with playing hooky a little bit longer and trips like, well, that's cool. Uh, and then he says, yeah, you know, my dad told me himself. We ended up talking. It's great. Obviously they repaired some of their relationship. There's a lot of relief coming out of them. Um, it's a real genuine feel good scene. Uh, to me, the big miss of the episode is that Trip just doesn't give this dude a hug and send him on his way because that's like the most fucking bro thing I've seen since the shoot. Yeah, yeah. Like they tie that up in a very it's, it's like a happy ending, right? Like Trip laid out this great piece of advice and this guy took it, you know, and how Star Trek. Yeah, like that's awesome. Like I love I love it when a plan comes together. That's great. It left me feeling pretty good about it. What doesn't leave me feeling pretty good is, uh, is, uh, Mr. Smirk, uh, having his, uh, his little fun adventure with, uh, sexual assault. So they get the Ouija board out and they start trying to talk to ghosts. And then the demon comes and possesses him. And she's all like, uh, Hey, I don't really want to do any more of this memory digging. And again, this really lends credence. I think to like the fact that this guy, uh, is addicted to, Mm-hmm. big emotions and you know there's blood in the water and he wants more of whatever he he what that uh oh gosh what is it 
when it's a sympathetic, you know, that's a sympathetic bond. It's, right? a, it's a sympathetic link. Yeah. He's uh, what's it when you experience something through someone else? He is uh, vicariously. Vicariously. Yes. Yes. This uh, emotional vampire. This was at Lestraga. Yeah. He wants that vicarious secondhand emotion. He wants it bad. This dude's ready to go hang out with like fucking Tuvok and the. <laughs> yeah. In that dirty corner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finally, she slaps him away from the mind melt, which is, I seem to recall, super dangerous. <laughs> and uh, he kicks her out of the, his, his quarter, her quarters and then passes out. She's got medical problems from whatever just happened. She calls sick bay because that's like, you know, her thing. And she the- needs at this point, she just needs the fucking help. I've fallen and I can't get up. So the, the the scene that wraps up the episode is essentially uh, Sergeant Smirk coming to speak to Archer and Archer's being real glad handy. Like, how you doing? Can I get you some yeah. coffee? Speaking of happy endings, I don't know if you know, but Jonathan Archer is a total masochist who gets off on getting his ass kicked. So he engineers. It's after the- fucking Chris Hansen uh, to catch a predator moment. Yeah. Take a seat over here. You know, which. uh what are you doing here? Yeah, it's uh I see uh you texted uh our our mark with Big Chungus 1997. Uh so uh we're gonna have a conversation about that. So he because he got all those headwinds from the Andorians and he hasn't been quite right since, he arranges this conflict and enrages uh to uh Sergeant Smirk uh by informing him, like, yes, I know that you sexually assaulted my first officer. And uh, you're so you're going to work alone. You're never going to see her again. You never get off again. You're going to be blue balled emotionally forever. You know, just like purposely pisses him off. So he starts fucking beating the shit out of Archer, who then gets pitches the biggest tent pole in his jumpsuit that was ever possible. Smirk picks him up with some WWF shit and just tosses him like a Terminator across the room into the corner where true to form again, like, you know, just. What would we what do we call Neelix the the choke baby? The yeah, choke, choke daddy. daddy. Yeah, he's the, the choke, choke daddy. daddy Tuvok. He gets thrown into the exact corner he wanted to be violently thrown into because he's got a gun taped to the back of the chair in pure Pretty Picard easy. fashion, right? That's like where the Romulans had the fucking Glocks and yeah. Picard's fucking house everywhere. Maybe maybe this wasn't Archer's exact plan was to get thrown into that corner. Maybe he's just got guns taped everywhere. And that makes the illusion that he's real smooth. But of the 14 phasers, like 12 are currently duct taped to various. I was just saying there's only 15 available because seven are in his (laughs) room. So he pulls the gun and then smirks like, you plan this. And then, Archer's laying on the floor, phaser in one hand, furiously masturbating in the other. <laughs> yes, I did. Now get off my shit. I have, a, I have a concussion so I can come. Now get out so I can finish myself off. <laughs> so they kick the Vulcans out. You know, Cobb has the scene with Trip. And they leave. Archer visits to Paul. And to Paul, you know, asks, like, do you dream? It's like, yeah, sometimes even in color. And he's like, are they good dreams? Like, yeah, dreaming's great. She's like, I envy you. Yeah. Archer's there in uh, T'Pol's lockout, tag out meditation room. I understand now why you guys meditate. Cool. Hey, Cap. 
Anything else you'd like to say? No to Paul. Good night. Oh, you you don't want to apologize for like basically thrusting me in the hands of this fucking monster, despite all my apprehension where I was telling you that my society heavily frowns on this stuff because it's like a really bad practice to the point where you were able to easily get this dude to fucking kick the shit out of you because you were going through fucking the shakes because it had been almost an up. Ep- no, yeah, it's been two ep- one episode since you got your ass kicked. Space Texans being the last time you got his ass kicked. Uh, nope. I'm like Janeway and Chakotay. I don't apologize for endangering the crew needlessly and uh, being an ignorant fuck. Good night to Paul. Good night, Cap. Good night, John boy. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. All right. I Again, I think this is a great episode. Uh, it's not very flattering to T'Pol. I think she gets some some cool stuff that happens with her. And, you know, backing off the the gropey assaulty vibes of smirk. Like if you look at, had they not sexualized it, right? Yeah. If they hadn't gone that direction, it could have really not been as, as weird and creepy. If she was not having sex dreams and if he wasn't so like mouth breathy in your faciness and just been like a fiend for, for high emotion, wanting to share that, wanting to spread the, the cult's knowledge. Uh, I think that could have done a lot to salvage the worst parts of this episode. But overall, great world building on Vulcans. Uh, some really cool new characters. And again, everything like uh, Smirk's past as a literary teacher, all the stuff with um, the other guy and his estranged father. Uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. Well, what are we watching next week, sir? We're going into season one, episode 18, Rogue Planet. And we got uh, what I'm assuming are Starfleet dudes with like laser tag goggles on. (laughs) While exploring an uncharted planet, Enterprise crew members encounter a group of aliens who are hunting down indigenous creatures for recreation during their exploration. Archer is mesmerized by visions of an elusive yet familiar woman who needs his help. Uh, okay, I smell a real Captain Planet episode coming on here. Uh, I, it definitely has Captain Planet vibes. I'm not gonna, not gonna tell you you're wrong, but I also thought it was always this one was always an interesting Star Trek story. Obviously, there's going to be some psychological trickery, and in the indigenous creatures are going to be the ones reaching out with illusions of familial faces to prompt Enterprise into helping. Over under on Topal victimization. What's your bet? Well, let's see. How many in a row have we had now? If we're to count the the dream of Reed, I think we're three for three. I don't know. Jeez, let me look. Yeah, the last three. Yeah. Hold on. Are we? Because uh, so is this one, which is certainly Shuttle Pod one, I'm going to say was needlessly sexually on her. Shadows of uh, Shadows Pajemo's booby FaceTime. Sleeping Dogs. Uh, she was in the sweatsuit and she had a little sexy hand job with uh, Hoshi, but I will not say she was victimized there. So, and dear doctors, I I would say there is a 75% probability she will be exploited. All right. I like that. I like those odds, sir. (laughs) We'll explore those odds in more detail when we return to you here on Feature Please. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.